giant robot smashing into other giant robots. All right, hey everybody. Uh, this is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here with Phil Lapierre, and this is episode two of the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. So, Phil, can you tell us what you do here? Uh, so, I'm a designer. Okay. Um, do a lot of front end development and work with clients to basically build web applications. Do okay. all. Cool. So at ThoughtBot, where do we draw the line between sort of designer and development? Like how far down the stack are you going? Yeah. So um, sort of the initial start is doing um, sketches, wireframes after the ide- ideation phase with the client. And then we, you know, we go all the way up to um, prototyping in, uh, in HTML and CSS and sort of stop at the point where it becomes, um, you know, intense JavaScript. We do some like jQuery stuff, right. um, but not any intense programming in javascript we leave that up to the developers cool yeah and, and i gotta say as a developer i appreciate uh, you taking off the, the html and css part for me and i just get to focus on the the code yeah so it's it's a nice harmony so how did you get into design um so initially was just uh kind of i think it was in high school perhaps um just, I think my brother was actually, uh, what was he doing? He had like clan, a clan for some Xbox game or something. And so uh-huh. I was doing like clan websites, right? That's hilarious. So just kind of getting into it in that that way, um, sort of exposed myself to HTML and CSS and do a design. But uh, initially, you know, um, once I got into college, that's where it really sort of took off. And that's where I knew I wanted to do some professional make a professional career out of doing design. Did you study design-specific stuff at school? Yeah, so um, I went to RPI and got a um, BA in, or sorry, a BS in uh, graphic design. Okay, interesting. And does that translate well into web stuff directly? Were you working on web stuff at the time? Right, so the only web stuff I was doing was actually outside of, outside of school, Okay. So it was like mostly doing. Were you a lot also of... making clan websites? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I wasn't. Um, wasn't part of that. But okay. uh, yeah, I mean, it's mostly just doing my own personal thing, like my own website, uh, my own portfolio, um, helping to teach others as well um, mm-hmm. outside of uh, school. So I mean, that was really it. But yeah, you could apply a lot of the fundamentals that you learn in design school, mm-hmm. um, basically to to like the web. It, it translates over pretty well. Okay. There's, so there's not too much difference between like print and web, um, not in the sense of like uh, design fundamentals. Got like it. there's definitely principles that you want to follow regardless of whether you're on print or web. So gotcha. Those translate. It's, over it's well. funny that you mentioned the the video game websites because you're like the third designer I've talked to that got started that way. <laughs> like they're like a like 13 year old ish, and they're playing video games and like their whatever clan or guild or whatever needs a website. And yeah, they end up, they end up being the guy. Yeah, like Fred, uh, who used to work here. Yeah, I think at the same start was like his Counter Strike clan. Yeah, exactly. Needed a website. Yeah. So, would you consider yourself a good designer? Um, I mean, I think there's um, a level of quality you have to be able to maintain at Thoughtbot, right? Sure. So I would say, you know, I'm 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 hopefully getting better every time I'm I'm working on a new project. Yeah. Uh, but you know. So so what what makes you good? Why if you had to tell someone that doesn't know a lot about design? Mm-hmm. why you are skilled at design, what would you say? Okay, so I would say it's having a good understanding of the fundamentals of design, you know, mm-hmm. the basic principles. Okay. And I think working in industry, you have to have, uh, especially here, HTML and CSS. Like you've got a, we, you know, we have a very strong skill set in that. Being able to study design um, on your own, having a personal interest in it, it's not something that you can just think you can go to work and, you know, and and bang out some stuff. Like you have to have a, a level of interest that goes beyond just work. It's 
it's a life, right? Like you, you yeah. make a life out of this. So you have to be constantly studying and constantly learning. I think like the best designers are people who are always asking questions and always wanting to learn. Mm-hmm. So, so what kind of, what do you do to learn? What do you, what do you read? What are you looking at? Yeah. So I think establishing a presence on Twitter is pretty big. Really? Following, I think and follow like following important people or people that are pretty, pretty well known in the industry who tweet a lot of great stuff, just mm-hmm. links to articles. Um, you know, people that are pushing the boundaries and writing blog posts and stuff that like, you know, you wouldn't otherwise get exposed to. But if you follow people who say are part of like the W3C or something, then you'll get like, oh, well, here's new uh, new features that are implemented to like the latest WebKit, right? Mm. So then you want to follow that and then you're like intrigued by that. And then, you know, eventually that trickles down into finally when it gets into like latest browsers and you can, you know, start working with those things. So are you reading specs then? <laughs> Sometimes, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is kind of boring and dry, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely times where I'm reading specs. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more when we get to bourbon. Yeah. So what's a good way for designers to sort of keep up with what's going on in the world and, and find inspiration? Yeah, um, so I would say, you know, follow people on Twitter. There's people with great voices on there and, mm-hmm. you know, always tweeting amazing resources. It's always excellent to see people's work. Mm. Um, get on Dribble. That's like a great way way to get your work seen by other people, even if it is just a small little snapshot. Um, follow people on Dribble. Um, you know, Dan Cedarholm is here. He's you know in he's outside you know Boston, and so he's like you know he's a designer over there at Dribble, and you know he's a driving force around that. And so you know definitely follow him. He's really cool. Okay. Any other people on Twitter specifically that you you like? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, Leah Vru, she does some pretty awesome stuff as far as front end development. She's got a great blog, good resources on there for you know just learning front end stuff. She you know speaks and take a look at her um, take a look at her slides for any of her presentations that she does because those are always you know very educated. Um, and uh, as far as UI design goes, like Benjamin DeCock, he's doing some pretty awesome stuff. Um, there's tons of people. Just check, take a look at Twitter, see who's following who. Um, try and have a voice, and yeah, just just follow follow the industry. Hmm. Let's switch let's switch uh, tax for a second. So, if a developer with basically no design chops had to design his own app, mm-hmm. and he came to you and was like, "I need help. I'm about to go do this app," what, and you had like two minutes to give this guy instruction that's going to help him for the next three months to build his own app. Yep. He's got okay. no designer. He's got to do all the design himself. Okay. And, and you have like, you know, you have 60 seconds to help. Does this guy what, have a what developer? Would you s- What's that? Does he have a developer? Oh, yeah, he's a developer. Yeah. Okay. This is a, develop- a developer. A developer. Okay. okay. So I would say look into existing frameworks that are out there. Things like Twitter bootstrap, um, I think can really help developers get up, up to speed and starting things really quick. It's a whole framework, right? So you've got all the CSS sort of comes with it. Um, you know, it gives you basically things you can throw into the DOM, you mm-hmm. know, classes and that kind of thing, which will structure your site. So I would say look at those kind of things. Um, so what about like fundamental principles? Like, okay. yeah, yeah. I know nothing about design. Yeah. Uh, what should, what should it look like? What should I do? Right. So, I mean, I think tr- don't try and go overly complicated with any kind of design. I think sometimes simple is better, even though that can tend to be pretty hard. Right. Um, it seems easier to make it more complicated a lot of the time yeah definitely just does. keep on throwing stuff up there exactly so so it, you know it's it's you got to strip things out you got to realize like when you know you've got too much on the page mm-hmm. um definitely think about white space that's like a huge principle of design like always sort of focus on you know where the content is on the page where it's flowing and and how 
you know, your eye sort of leads down it. And I think, and white space definitely can, can lead your eye down a page and through a page. Can you, what does that mean? Like, um, so you sort of have this negative space and positive space. Okay. Um, and so your positive space will be the, um, like the actual content. So like content blocks, say maybe an article, a sidebar, that sort of thing, a yep. header, like those are positive space. They take up the positive space. And so the negative space, the white space is the spaces in between. And so making sure that you've got room for that, you know, positive space to breathe, that content to actually breathe inside there so that the, the sidebar is not too crammed on the actual article. Okay. That sort of thing. So making sure you've got, you know, plenty of, 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 uh, white space so the, is the fundamental rule of white space is have enough of it <laughs> yeah of course i mean you always I, I don't think you can have too much white space interesting so if when you see pages that are not designed that well is that a typical error you that you come across um yeah i mean i think i think people are getting better at it these days mm-hmm. um because you know i think back in the days it was just like throw as much content on a page as you can and mm-hmm. that's where things got crammed but um i mean there's tons of different rules, like having good typography too really improves a, a page. Like you can you can do de- design just alone with with having good you know type. So okay, so I'm a developer. I know nothing about type. Like I'm starting off with browser defaults, and everything is like Times New Roman or something. Okay. So how do I go from that and like where do I want serifs and where don't I and what right. size is like just again high level stuff, really basic. Things. Okay. What so so for a web page, uh, typically you would want maybe no more than two, possibly three at the max uh, typefaces. Okay. I would say stick with two. Um, you know, one that one that's sort of headline uh, fonts. So, you know, you might set like a headline in um, a bold like sans serif, right? Just something that like catches catches your, your eye. And then the article might be written in a serif font. So you've got contrast between those two fonts because you've got, you know, headline and um, the actual article. So there already is contrast between those two. Typically... Your headline will be a lot already larger than your you know your body copy, so yeah. there's going to be contrast there, and so you want to sort of um, juxtapose those two together. So what what are what are common design errors you see when you find a page that you like you just don't like or you think it doesn't work? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of problems do you tip, what they typically have? Yeah, um, a lot of it is proximity issues, so things are too close to each other. Okay, getting back to white um, space. White space, exactly. Yeah. Um, there could be people using just really gaudy fonts, mm. things, something like that. So um, you want different fonts, but not bad fonts. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that's just something you have to develop taste around. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's seen a lot of fonts and playing with fonts before you develop a, a good repertoire of you know having uh, you know fonts under your belt of what's good, what mm-hmm. what works with what fonts. Um, sometimes people pair fonts poorly together, and that can be tricky too. Um, so you know, advanced designers maybe will have a better understanding of that. Mm. Um, other things is bad color choices. Um, yep. so. Okay. So you, you touched on earlier, um, the design process that we use here. Uh, can you just sort of walk through like the first couple days if we're starting with like a brand new app, like how you talk to the client and figure out, you know, what these things are going to look like? Yeah. So oftentimes we do, actually every time it's, uh, um, requirements gathering. So we meet with the client for an entire day, have a kickoff meeting, mm-hmm. gather all the requirements for what the project is actually going to be. Um, likely do wireframes when we're sitting with a client. Um, sketch just sorry. sketched out somewhere. Yeah, we do whiteboarding. Mm-hmm. So just sketch some stuff out on a whiteboard. Very rough ideas. Trying to get a, build a mental model of the system that we're eventually going to be building. Um, so a lot of that is just you know developing that yourself with whoever else on the team as well as the client. Mm. 
because they often have really good feedback too. Yeah. So once we sort of get those requirements and we're you know designing out a bunch of stuff, um, we'll, we'll quick we'll, question about that. Do, do you have questions that you typically ask, like standard questions that you like that sort of elicit the information you need? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it always depends on the project, depending on what what you're getting at. Um, because you know, it's a, every application has a different set of data and a different set of uh, requirements that it's going to, the user has to do on that, that page, like functionality. So a lot of it is just figuring out the data, what's going to be where, um, and building your own mental model of the system. And that's going to sort of drive the questions. And so you might, you know, be asking, you know, what's the most important information on this page? Mm. Uh, what goes in the header, um, you know, should we organize this information in the sidebar? You know, what are the most important actions that a user is going to use on this page? Mm. And that will definitely drive how the information is laid out and designed on the page, what what interactions a user takes on that page. Um, okay. So we've got, you've done some basic wireframing probably on a whiteboard. What happens after that? After that is going, sort of sitting down, um, looking over the requirements, and then start doing some more high-fidelity sketches. So I'll do those high-fidelity sketches and present those um, or show them to the client, kind of give give them a rough idea of what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And or um, I will take them to uh, Photoshop or Fireworks. Typically, uh, I'm a Fireworks user, so I'll use Fireworks Mm -hmm. to just do um, kind of a prototype, a visual prototype of what that would look like. Okay. Are you, are you doing any like fancy type or color at this point? Or no, like- it's just usually it's just like grayscale style stuff, just using Helvetica. Okay. So not really letting the client or myself really worry about that right now. It's just right. get this information on there and see what functionality lives on this page or got it. So it's, so it's about the big pieces at first and color and type don't count. Exactly. Yet. Yeah. So nailing down those bigger pieces. It was like, me- you know, forming that mental model of the system. So just hitting those big pieces, how the information's laid out. Um, in the system. And and then after that, it's typically um, doing some HTML and CSS prototypes. So not even worrying, again, not worrying about color, um, fonts, anything like that. So it's just like, you know, laying it out. Mm-hmm. But what's really nice about that is like you, you're, you're able to show the client the HTML and CSS prototypes. So they're able to get a good feel of what that's actually going to look like. Maybe click through some pages. Right. Okay. So you mentioned fireworks. Uh, I, I know you prefer fireworks over Photoshop for this sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about why? I do. Fireworks is pretty awesome. Um, I, I just recently did a project um, with it, and it was all the whole project was kind of delivering um, mockups. Mm-hmm. So what's great about it was like it gives you the ab- ability to add pages, and so inside those each page you can have um, separate layers. So Photoshop doesn't do this. Like, there's no concept of that. There's this concept of folders in Fireware or in Photoshop, but it's still it, it, all your layers are still in the same panel. So it's really great about Fireworks. It gives you this ability. Um, you can also set, you can do um, like symbols. And so what a symbol is like, you can have a collection of different elements, right? So say you've got um, uh, a toolbar at the top, right? So this is your header bar. It has your navigation and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. there might be like 20 different elements inside that symbol. You can create it as a symbol and then copy it to those page, the multiple pages. You can say, this is going to live on like 10 pages. Interesting. And so anytime you go to those different pages, that header bar is going to always be there. And then if you change that header bar, it reflects throughout all 10 pages. Interesting. So it's like a sort of like a partial. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly like a partial. Yeah. Okay. 
and so fireworks was was created for just like web for mock, web for web stuff right exactly photoshop wasn't right so it's sort of a better fit yeah i i definitely think so i mean i have used photoshop um in the past mm-hmm. and i just find coming to fireworks is it just feels a lot less bulkier it feels a lot you know it just feels much more efficient mm. um you know lighter the files that you're dealing with too are like i don't know a meg versus you get enough to photoshop and you're dealing with like 30 meg files for mm. the same thing you know mm. um but the tools are definitely geared for web specific designing around screen basically in web so it's i find this a lot easier to use mm. um once you have a, gra- a grasp of the tools it's a lot i'm a lot more efficient with the tools mm. cool so when you look back at your old work, things you've done a couple of years ago, what do you dislike about it? Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like um, you know when I joined a few years ago, um, you know, still getting into the space and feeling out, um, you know, a lot of like the the latest web sort of pra- best practices, right? And a lot has changed in the past few years where. Now we have responsive design and everyone's, you know, designing so that, uh, you know, application that you're building actually scales down to a smaller size, right? So, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot that's changed, um, you know. But when, but do you look at your old stuff and go, uh... Of course, yeah. There's always a sense of, of that. And maybe it's just, uh, you know, the more that I've actually played around and, and been doing web work, the better I understand how to use these tools and how to use... Um, you know, drop shadows and color and mm. gradients and, you know, you find out what works the more that you do it. So, of course, there's, there's a learning curve when you, when you first get into indus- the industry and, and uh, yeah, of course I look back and say, oh man, like, I could have did that so much better. Yeah. Of course, there's time constraints too that sort of drive your ultimate decision on something. Mm-hmm. Learning process too is really effective because like, you know, I can look back and say, oh man, I just wasted so much time doing just uh, like tons of Photoshop mockups on this stupid view, right? This page. Yeah. Versus like maybe I should actually get in there and, and put that data on the page in the HTML and CSS and maybe, you know, run an, run um, some user testing on that and let that sort of drive, you know, what information lives there or, you know, how that could be redesigned better rather than sticking a bunch of time just iterating on, you know, 20 different Photoshop mockups. So mm. process is absolutely fundamental to, I guess, I think delivering good work. Mm. So speaking of process, uh, something that I know you wouldn't have done a couple of years ago is use a tool like bourbon. Yeah. Can you talk about what bourbon is? So bourbon is a library of SAS mixins. Mm-hmm. It's pretty lightweight. We try and make it so that, um, it's very easy to install on your project. You just kind of drop it in and then do an include and it just sort of lives in that space. And you're the, you created this? Yeah. So I created bourbon. Uh, I say maybe that was like a year, year and a half ago or maybe a year ago. I think it was a year ago at the, at Cape Code. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you're still maintaining it. Yeah, of course I still maintain it. Um, but it's a great project. And so it sort of evolved out of this thing that like we were using SAS on all of our projects at ThoughtBot and, we like where so we were using SAS and we were all creating our separate mixins. Mm-hmm. All the designers, we had five designers at the time, all all creating mixins or using some kind of similar mixin that does the same thing. And right? what's a mixin? Mixin is um, so for example, we were using like a linear gradient mixin or um, 
So all those linear gradient mixins have vendor prefixes in CSS, and so each of those vendor prefixes target a different browser. Okay. And so in order to get that linear gradient to work, you have to have, say, maybe three properties or four different properties to hit all those different browsers, make it work in all those different browsers. And so that becomes a pain to maintain. And so you can use SAS basically to basically create a mix-in so that you only have to pass that function once and then give it a color argument, two color arguments for that gradient. And then you're only dealing with that one string that you're dealing with, right? And you can change those arguments only once, and then. So the, does the mixin the mixin actually generates a CSS? Does yeah. So it's like a method that returns CSS almost. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So, so it just l- outputs l- the standard CSS. Okay. So it lets you sort of step up a level of abstraction, yep. and rather than writing four lines of linear gradient, you just say, "I want a linear gradient that works everywhere," and here are my arguments, and it generates what you need. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So we were so we had I don't know at this time we didn't have too many mixins uh, about a year and a half ago, and so we were maybe dealing with maybe three or four mixins and but each person had different like a different style or the, uh, just a different um, you know mixin. So eventually I realized this was a pain if we were trying to go you know one designer went to a different project and then there was some other syntax that you had to write like so it's yeah. kind of a pain. So we ended up, I ended up extracting this out into a gem over Cape Code. You know, we had a week to sort of work on things. So um, ended up making bourbon. And at that time, maybe it was like six or eight mix-ins, right? Okay. And so, so it's just basically grown since then. But what's nice about it is it gives us the control of um, sort of making these mix-ins um, to our needs, the way that we do things at ThoughtBot. It's very opinionated in a sense that it, you know there's no co- there's no configuration file. It's basically you know here are the mixins, here are the vendor prefixes. They're up to date with um, the W3C spec, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. just just trying to remove any kind of um, hassle from the users who are actually using Bourbon. So are most of your mixins um, used to prevent you from having to deal with vendor uh, browser prefixes or are there other things in there as well? There's other things in there as well. Um, we try and hit a lot of those things that deal with dealing with vendor prefixes, but there are other functions, custom functions that we've created. There's a good grid width function in there. And what's that do? So the grid width function is going to help you create a grid for your website so you can set up all, um, you can set the mixing up and the variables and stuff so that you can uh, create basically a good grid for your website. So like the right the right size divs, all that kind of stuff. So you can just customize that and just set up a really solid grid. What what does grid width actually return or generate? I mean, there's a different there's a few different things. It returns like um, gutters and the columns. Okay. So you might have like a 16 column grid, and maybe those are set up at I don't know like uh, 20 pixels, and then it calculates the what the gutters are going to be for those. Can you give me an example of um, a non-browser prefix function that is useful in day to day? Yeah. So the um, so we have some variables in there which are pretty cool. Okay. Um, and just like uh, font variables. So like if you want to call just a font stack like a Helvetica font stack. It's like you'll have you'll just call you know dollar sign Helvetica. And so you've predefined a Helvetica font stack. Font stack exactly. Okay. So you know you basically want a Helvetica font stack, and then it basically is going to have whatever fallbacks there are to that uh, to Helvetica. So as well as there's like a there's a serif one like Verdana. You know there's a few of them. So that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, 
Is it, uh, so this is a gem, right? Yeah, this is a gem. Can you use it outside Ruby projects? Absolutely. So we try to make it really uh, easy to set up. You know, once you have the gem installed or, you know, you can, you can download it right from the repo, just throw the, the, the bourbon files right into, uh, a set, you know, your style sheets directory. And then as long as you have SAS installed, you can just do a SAS watch. Okay. And then it, you know, works. Cool. So what makes a developer colleague easy to work with? I think there's, uh, you know, having someone who's on a similar page, like when you're, when I'm working with a developer, right? I want them to, you know, be respectful of my work and know like where there's sort of boundaries and where we need to meet. Right. Mm. So like handing off my stuff to a developer and having a developer like meet me where we need to, um, to get that actually like that, that design functioning, that sort of thing. Um, um, I think ha- you know having a developer that's willing to listen is is huge, and and a developer that like when they have questions, they come to the designer that's a specific like a, a design question, come to the designer and say, hey, like w- like how should this be done, or how should this be laid out, or what's the design? Mm. Like if, you know, we're working with developers. Like sometimes you'll get to a point where developers will sometimes take on like a design you know, something that's like design and they'll just like style it or they'll do something. But the problem with that is like, well, that's not the way that maybe that doesn't fit into design, like the way that you thought it would or something. Right. So I think like having someone, having a developer that like wants to, you know, produce really good quality work and knows where that is, like that boundary is where they need to come to the designer and say, Hey, like, you know, how should this be? And then right. we work on a solution to that. And yeah. And that's, I think that, I don't know if this is unique to ThoughtBot, but, Typically, in projects with developers and designers, you guys kind of own the the way the user experience is going to run. And so I know how I'm going to implement something, roughly, but mm-hmm. I will like check in with you and be like, okay, so in the case that the user has no messages, what are we going to do when he goes to here? And you're going to sort of control the high-level idea of what, how the app is going to function. Right. I mean, I think, it's imp- I think it's important to have a developer like in person, right? Because it's like really nice to have us in person and be mm-hmm. able to work together mm-hmm. versus working remotely or working to a point where like I just send stuff off to a developer that's like remote. Like, sure. Because like then we get, you know, that, that exchange of like, you know, seeing the progress of where you are, where I am. And there's like a tight feedback loop of like what we're working on. If you have a problem and you, you know, you need my, my help, then like I go there. If I you know, if I have a problem... I'm ready. I'm working the code. Like I'll call you over, and you're able to help. So. Yeah, one of the things I love about our, our workflow is that um, developers and designers are both pushing to the same repo. So it's actually it's it's a lot of fun to pull down from master, and then like suddenly things look better, and like there's new elements on the page, and like it's it's really fun as a developer <laughs> like to see your work sort of steadily getting more beautiful and more usable. And so I I really like that about us. We don't sort of work independently and then jam everything together at the end. It's like very much iterative. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Okay, so we have a few questions that came in from the Twitter sphere. The first is from Chris O'Brien. Uh, his Twitter handle is COD, and he asks, uh, what is your best bit of advice for successfully managing the design feedback process? So I imagine he's talking about clients coming back and being like, uh, yeah, clients with feedback. I don't like this part of this or this color or whatever. Like, how, mm-hmm. do, you, how do you handle that? Um, so I think you have to have a good working relationship with that client. Um, the way we we work is we try and have a tight feedback loop with the client. So like every week week we're meeting with the client and getting you know them their eyes on the project. Mm. 
so they can see the progress we're making as well as just to update them on the design, right? And, and get feedback, solicit feedback when we need to. There's always feedback they're going to give that you're going to be like, eh, maybe, you know, like you don't know really design. I've been studying design for, for so many years. Yeah. Like, How do you handle that? It's tough. There's a there's a good balance you have to have of saying, well, your idea sucks. It's stupid, right? Right. As well as like, well, maybe actually that's a legitimate concern or, or mm-hmm. problem. So I think... Um, I think having a tight feedback loop is really helpful because you like every week. So, so say next week I get, I get feedback this week, maybe next week I go and maybe make some changes or something. Then I can show it to them versus if you have really long deadlines, so you say like you have a four month project and you have a deadline or you have a halfway point two months in. And then, you know, that fi- you finally show them like at the end, it's just like you, that feedback that you got halfway through is like, you know, you've put so much time and effort into something that you've built out for two right. months. Like then it's a lot harder to change and a lot harder to, you know, want to implement their feedback. Yeah. And you, you have way more opportunity to go off the track from right. what they wanted. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So your passive urge. So if you can keep having a tight feedback loop, you have a, you know, really tight pass and you guys are on the same page. And so it, it makes it easier to deal with that feedback. Mm. When you're dealing with it on a week by week versus you get all the feedback, you know, all at once, maybe mm. halfway through the project. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if there's there's a. Uh... So, so one thing our buddy, uh, mutual friend Shamazola said to me is that he thinks being a designer can often be tougher than being a developer because with the, when you're a developer, you write something and then as long as it works, the client is happy. They never look at your code and go. Uh, like that code just doesn't really pop. Or <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't like the color of your 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 code. Right. But like, when you're showing a design to someone, it's really hard to. It can be hard to justify it because like they they push back. They're like, oh, I don't really like these color choices, and you don't have. It's not quite as concrete that you can push back and be like, no, this is a good engineering decision. It's more like, no, this is an aesthetic decision, and you need to sort of trust me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. I, th- I feel like with color, it's particularly difficult because everyone has opinions about color. Yeah, totally. And I've dealt with it in the past, and it's it's really it's tough. But I think one thing that can help is educating them on you know what color, how color is perceived by people. Mm. So like certain colors, I just read an article um, where like uh, orange and yellow in a design or interface is seen as cheap. Versus people think blue and black is uh, expensive and uh, high tech. So there's there's different things that you can you know ways you can educate a client yeah. to help to help your decision be meaningful or they you know they they think that your your color decision is is good. So yeah. just just educating them is really helpful. Bringing up articles about any kind of. Um, you know, decisions that you've made that can help support your, you know, UI, UX decisions. Yep. Makes sense. I, that feels sort of like the, the downside of, or the, the, the not as fun side of consulting is that sometimes at the end of the day, like they're like, I just don't like it. And you just got to kind of roll over and be like, fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I've dealt with that too plenty of times where you yeah. just got to, sometimes you just have to hit the drawing board or sometimes like you're so, it's hard to be, you know, you create a design, you put so much effort into it, mm. and you try and sell it. And sometimes you try and sell it too hard, and to the point where the client really doesn't like it. And then it's hard to just let it go and be like, all right, I need to go back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. It's like you want to keep pushing that. You're so, right. like, you put so much time and effort into it. 
And there's a really great quote by Johnny Ive that says uh, about the, that sums up that exact same thing where it's just, you know, you're selling it so hard. And at the end of the day, maybe you're just selling it too hard and it's just not the right decision. And since you're selling it too hard, it just isn't working. Mm, okay. So here's another question from Brian Burridge. He says, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on Hamel as part of the technology solution stack. I love SaaS, but personally think there is no reason at all to adopt Hamel over a very reliable and well-honed HTML. But I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so Hamel, um, you know, there's a level of abstraction that like Hamel does to HTML that I feel like is somewhat unnecessary. It's so, like I think it's it's easier to read HTML, you know, as it is with you know the the right syntax. I think it's it's been around for a number of years now, right? And I think it's it's continuously in development. Um, yeah, I personally like using so HTML. Haml. True, that's true. Um, but again, I, I sort of think of Haml as the SAS syntax or the SAS syntax of SAS or SCSS syntax of SAS. Okay. So it's, you know, you're extracting out all the, you know, open and closing brackets. Um, Trading it for a white space sensitivity. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think it can potentially be more difficult to read, um, more prone to errors. Mm. So uh, we, we've, stand, we've standardized here on HTML, ERB, um, and we, but we gave Hamill a shot, I recall. Mm-hmm. Or actually, this is before my time, but I know this happened. So do you remember some of the issues that came up with that? I you know I haven't used it too frequently okay. enough to really have a good understanding of what the you know major issues are. Yeah, but I know that like I personally you know like writing HTML. And when you get to using a great editor like Vim, mm. I know you're a huge Vim fan, Ben. Maybe yeah, it could be. Yeah, so it's you know makes writing HTML a lot easier when you have things that um you know that fill in the the closing tag for you yep that thing that, that yep. sort of thing surround.vim so, is a my big my big friend there exactly yep. so that makes writing html really easy mm. um i don't know i mean it's it, my, my takeaway from talking to some other people was that it just ended up being surprising too often like things that seemed like they were going to work wouldn't work and it's sort of it was bringing a level of complexity that did not justify the gain that it was giving unfortunately and it, it's I'm sort of sad about it because I actually really want to love Hamel and I want it, I want it to work because I'm a huge believer in white space sensitivity and like the, the wins it can have. And so this feels a little bit like uh, CoffeeScript to JavaScript as Hamel is to HTML. And I love CoffeeScript. So I want, I want Hamel to work. I want it to win. Uh, it didn't work for us, unfortunately. But who knows? Maybe in the future. We'll see. So, Phil, I, I appreciate you talking with me today and sharing your design knowledge and, and spreading it out into the world. Uh, it's been good talking to you. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So we answered a couple of questions this time. And if you would like to have your questions answered, you can submit them in a couple of different ways. The first is you can call us at 877-9-ROBOTS and extension 198 and leave us a voicemail. Or you can email your questions to info at thoughtbot.com. You can tweet to us at thoughtbot, or you can even just post them on the blog. This podcast is going to be posted with a series of show notes on our blog at robots.thoughtbot.com. And if you want to check out any of the designers that Phil talked about or links to various tools that we covered, those will be there in the show notes as well. Thanks a lot and have a good day.